Welcome to Impact AI, brought to you by Pixel Scientia Labs. I'm your host, Heather Couture. On this podcast, I interview innovators and entrepreneurs about building a mission-driven, machine-learning-powered company. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to my newsletter to be notified about new episodes. Plus, follow the latest research in computer vision for people in planetary health. You can sign up at pixelscientia.com newsletter. Today, I'm joined by guest Subit Chakrabarti, Vice President of Technology at Floodbase, to talk about flood monitoring. Subit, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Subit, could you share a bit about your background and how that led you to Floodbase? Yes, of course. So my background is in electrical engineering and signal processing. I started my career in a PhD program working on digital signal processing and machine learning algorithms for various kinds of signals. And there was an opportunity to be looking at satellite imagery. And as a huge fan of NASA and space agencies around the world, I jumped at that opportunity and worked on machine learning algorithms for satellite imagery in general, and specifically images to increase the spatial resolution of satellite imagery using advanced machine learning methods. And after my PhD, I wanted to continue in the field, originally wanted to continue in academia, but felt a little burnt out at the end of my PhD and wanted to kind of test the waters in industry. And I had the opportunity to work at a small startup company doing crop type mapping and land cover mapping and mapping kind of like the food supply that we all kind of depend on. And that was an interesting opportunity. And I fell in love with kind of the fast pace of startups and continued working in that field until about two years ago when I decided to ditch a little bit and work on disaster risk and uh, mitigating disaster risk. And that brought brought me to Floodbase. So what does Floodbase do? And, and why is this important in adapting to climate change? So floods are the most common and costly natural disasters on Earth. 83% of global economic losses from flooding was uninsured over the last decade. And adapting to global flood risk is something that is near and dear to my heart, having kind of grown up in India and having seen a lot of damage from floods in eastern India, where I used to live. And we need newer, better insurance, particularly, but risk transfer methods generally to adapt to the increasing magnitude and frequency of disasters. And flood bases end-to-end that data solution enables this new kind of insurance, which you know is called parametric flood insurance, and more efficient disaster response. And what role does machine learning play in this technology? So let me tell you a little bit about parametric insurance. So parametric insurance pays out when a pre-agreed condition is made, kind of separate from the physical damage. So you can imagine a parametric wind insurance scheme, where if there's 85 miles per hour winds, you know, then a policy automatically gets paid out. Why is this is important is because indemnity insurance policies, which are kind of like how traditional insurance policies are designed, take a lot of time to pay out and require a lot of money to administer because you need adjusters and verifiers. And after a catastrophe like a hurricane or, you know, like any kind of flooding, you need capital fast 
to recover from that uh, catastrophic event. And traditional insurance policies are usually not fast enough to, to cover you know, that. Parametric insurance, on the other hand, because they track a parameter over time and you know, pay out immediately after the parameter is, is met or exceeded, is very efficient in terms of paying out. So that's what FloodBase focuses on. And we use satellite imagery in, in general and other kinds of geospatial data sets to power that. And what we use machine learning for is to kind of design that index that, you know, is what the parametric insurance schemes can be based on. And that is kind of like a proprietary AI technology. So how do you set up these models? Is it, you know, for a particular location and point in time from the satellite imagery, you're predicting whether there was flooding there? Or is there another way to set this up? Yes, exactly. So that is the kind of like generalized model that we use. So we don't do it for a location in particular, but we do it, you know, across the globe. But we have a lot of diversity in our training data set to accommodate kind of like all kinds of different locations. We do have different models for inside the U.S. and outside the U.S. because the U.S. is a particularly data-rich region where we can leverage a lot of different kinds of data. But in general, I think, you know, you can think of the model as having satellite imagery and other geospatial data sets as input and then flood map as an output. So that's the first stage. And then the second stage converts that flood map into an index for a specific region or domain that you can kind of look at throughout history to construct an index on. And each of those pieces uses machine learning? Each of those pieces uses machine learning to some extent. So the first step, which is the conversion of various sources of satellite imagery and other geospatial data into a flood map, uses a sort of kind of very, you know, state-of-the-art deep learning technology. And then the step after that, it converts the flood map into an index, which on which you know you can underwrite an insurance policy that uses machine learning, but it, you know, it's just advanced statistics essentially. You mentioned satellite imagery. Could you tell me a bit more about the types of satellite imagery we work with and any other data sources that go into building these models? Yes, of course. So we use all kinds of satellite imagery. I can name a few that is particularly important to our technique. So importantly, I think like you can break up satellite imagery or Earth observing satellite imagery to be specific uh, into all sorts of different parts. In my mental map, the most important part is public satellite imagery, which is, you know, publicly controlled satellites that were launched by NASA or the European Space Agency or the Japanese Aerospace Agency versus privately operated satellites that are launched by kind of, you know, big private companies. The role of public satellite imagery is that they go back pretty far in time. So NASA launched the first Earth observing satellite in actually like, you know, the, the early 70s to for various purposes. So because we utilize that data set, we can kind of go back pretty far in time to produce flood maps, which is very, very important if you want to quantify the risk of place being flooded and not just whether a place is flooded at the given moment. If you don't have both of those things, then you can maybe kind of create a flood map, but you can't write an insurance policy because you do need to understand the risk as well. So 
using public imagery is super important for us because it you know goes back kind of like pretty far in time. That is not to say that we don't use private imagery. So we use imagery from uh, our partners at Planet Labs, uh, who, who operate a swarm of or constellation of satellites and Capella Space and Umbra and Satellogic as well. And the role of those satellites is to complement our public satellite data. The private satellites usually are higher resolution, so they give you a finer perspective on what is happening on the ground, which is important if you want to do flood mapping, for example, at the property level rather than at the regional scale. And we also use different wavelengths of data. So the first way to break up Earth observing satellite imagery is whether they're publicly operated or privately owned. The second way is what kind of wavelength of light their sensors are sensitive to. The three kind of big categories there are optical and near infrared, which is you know what we see as humans. The second is thermal infrared, which is basically how hot something is, like you know the temperature. And the third is microwaves. So for microwaves, uh, satellites emit and sense the reflected radiation. All of them play a different role. The very important thing about microwaves, for example, is that they can penetrate through clouds. Whereas optical imagery, obviously, if there's a cloud on top of something, you can't really you know, see what's underneath. So that's why we use kind of the whole suite of imagery available from all satellites, and they each have their kind of like own interesting you know, part to play in our algorithms. Apart from satellite imagery, we also use models of how water flows. So these models are operated by in the US by NOAA, for example, and they give you the state of every river and every kind of like tight gauge operating on the coast at all times. And what we use that for is to complement the satellite imagery we already have and make it uh, more continuous. With the different types of satellite imagery, the different wavelengths and different spatial resolutions, do you need to train different models for for different satellites and and parts of the spectrum? Or is there a multimodal uh, way to bring them together? So that's a very interesting question, first of all. So like I said, there's three different classes of satellites. There's optical, uh, near-infrared, that's like basically one class. There's thermal infrared, which is the second class. And there's microwave, active and passive microwave, which is the third class. We train algorithms for each sensor independently at this point. Uh, but I think like, you know, with the goal of the R&D team at that base is to, is to create a multimodal solution. What kinds of challenges do you encounter in, in working with these diverse types of satellite imagery and your other data sources? So one of the kind of like most important challenges with satellite imagery is that satellite imagery represents the condition of a place at a certain point of time. And it's not kind of a continuous view into um, what that you know flood looks like at that place. So for example, if you consider the NASA Landsat satellite, they usually overpass in the afternoon at some point, every kind of seven, maybe seven to ten days. So between those overpasses, if you don't have kind of like additional sources of data, it's uh, very difficult to tell whether a place is better or not. And specifically for insurance or, you know, even for disaster response, 
you kind of need a continuous view into you know what inundation looks like at a given place. So if you just rely on satellite imagery, you know that is kind of the missing piece of the puzzle, which is why we use kind of these other continuous geospatial data sources. That's one thing, and then there's other aspects like you know cloud cover, like I said earlier, uh, optical imagery. It's very it's relatively straightforward to design models for optical imagery because you know we as humans are kind of like natively trained you can say to kind of recognize water in optical imagery so we can create kind of like you know big data sets to train these models on but clouds represent a problem especially in tropical regions where you know during monsoons you can have cloud cover you know place for days on the other side in microwave imagery where which has, has the advantage of being able to see through clouds. The problem is, is that it's very hard to interpret that imagery and has been the domain of kind of like national intelligence for like, you know, the past few decades, where what you're looking at is not actually image per se, but a wave. And you have to convert that wave into an image before you can visualize it, which results in a, you know, a bunch of problems uh, kind of interpreting that imagery. So, you know, on that interpretation scale, you can say optical imagery is easier to interpret, but, you know, has gaps, whereas microwave imagery is harder to interpret, but doesn't have any gaps. So how we solve that challenge is essentially, uh, as you were talking about, creating a, a multimodal solution. And you can create this multimodal solution at different stages of the process, right? So you can create the multi, you know, you can integrate different kinds of satellites at the very end when you're creating the index. Or you can integrate various satellites at the beginning of the process, you know, when you're creating the flood map. And we start with kind of like integrating it towards the end of the process and are now kind of going up the chain and doing the integration at an earlier and earlier stage, which is good because, you know, the earlier you do that integration, the less information you lose because you can imagine that as you go kind of like further from a raw image to an index, you know, at each step you lose some information. Is bias a concern for flood models? And if so, how might it manifest? Yeah, again, a great question. So insurance and disaster response, it's important to take into account that there's already existing data that is used to kind of create policies and prioritize different areas and, and things like that. And they have a lot of bias that is kind of like built in due to the politics of disaster response, let's just say. So our kind of policy at FloodBase is that we add more data to remove bias from the process. Uh, and in general, I think, you know, if you look at more data and if you kind of like derive your policy, your statistics, uh, on a larger data set that always kind of like removes bias than adding bias. And we work with folks like FEMA to make kind of like better maps and remove biases in those maps. So a larger data set is really the solution you're focused on. Do you need to focus on more data in specific areas or is it just generally a, a larger data set can uh, reduce the bias? Yes. Again, that's a very interesting question. This is something that I was also focused on a lot when I did my PhD. So usually, if you train a machine learning algorithm on a specific data set, 
extrapolate within that data set and try to extrapolate a little bit in the data set, but it cannot fundamentally construct new things that it, you know you don't show it in that data set. So for example, if you consider a hypothetical scenario where you train a flood mapping algorithm uh, to predict flooding, and you only show it, you know, wetlands or, or, you know, temperate forests. And then you ask it to generalize in the city, like you'll get answers that are like completely wrong. So what we focus on is, is creating a training data set that is as diverse as possible, both on kind of like, you know, what is the representation of an urban area you're showing with versus what biome does this data belong to? Versus even kind of like, you know, what kind of latitude are you looking at? And the other important thing is altitude or slope. So once we kind of stratify enough on all of these axes, we also have held out validation data sets that are similarly diverse so that we can surface any bias in the algorithm as soon as possible uh, before we get on to kind of the index creation step and recognize and address it by, you know, adding data in, in those locations. So that is what I was talking about, uh, if that makes sense. Right. So it's not just larger, it's more diverse and diverse with respect to the axes that, that you mentioned there. Yeah. I mean, in general, bias surfaces in any kind of statistical, you know, like uh, extrapolation algorithm. When the statistics of your training set is very different from the statistics of your validation set or the statistics of your testing set, what we try to do is make sure that that doesn't happen. Another way in which bias surfaces in all sorts of kind of like, you know, when you try to uh, build a machine learning model that to, to extrapolate a natural process is because you train it on the past and you're trying to predict the, the present. And because of climate change, the statistics of the past are, are not very accurate, you know, when you're trying to predict the, the statistics of the present. That's the other thing that we use kind of like various statistical techniques to, to solve. That's latter one with the, you know, changes over time. That sounds like a much more, more difficult one to solve. That is very difficult to solve. And flood base is only deals with the present. Right? Like, so we tell you what the flood looks like at this point. We don't do any predictions into the future. And the future part is where it gets really tricky and, and is pretty much an unsolved problem. But for what we do right now, we just like wait times that are nearer to us, higher than uh, the past. And that kind of solves a lot of the issues related to kind of, you know, this is like a, in, in technically a stationarity problem. Like, you know, the distribution we're sampling for is not stationary. And the way that we attempt to solve the kind of monitoring problem is to wait kind of the, you know, last month higher than we would wait uh, 1979. That makes sense. So why is now the right time to build this technology? Are there any specific technological advances that made it possible to do this now when it wouldn't have been feasible a few years ago? Yeah, I mean, the big one is really the plethora of satellite observations uh, available and kind of advanced AI and machine learning techniques that we can use to leverage the satellite observations. The progress in both just over my kind of like, you know, short career has been tremendous and it continues to kind of really exponentially grow and we get kind of like better and better satellites every year from private as well as public you know, governments. 
And this has really allowed us to do this and utilize imagery and, and you know, geospatial data sets at a scale that was not possible before. The third one is, is obviously computing. You know, our, our models are very heavy on our computing resources that they require to train and run inference on. And, you know, the availability and, and cheapness of cloud computing is the third pillar. But that's, I, I think, a more general across other technology sectors. The first two are why a company like FloodBase can exist today. How do you measure the impact of your technology to be sure that you're accomplishing what you set out to do? Yeah, so I think we are a very kind of like impact-driven company in general. Uh, if you go to www.floodbase.com, that will be super clear. So the biggest thing that we can measure is the flood protection gap. So like I said, you know, 83% of losses were uninsured. And we can measure that to kind of like, you know, the effectiveness of, of the policies that we power. And that is kind of a big one for us. The other thing that we do is we work to get to make aid delivered faster. So, you know, governments across the world rely on our data to provide aid to the basis that are most affected by a flood. And we can measure kind of like, you know, how effective that is. And those are kind of really like the two big pillars of what we measure to quantify the impact of our technology. And then on the technical side, you know, like flood mapping accuracies and all those metrics are also important. Is there any advice you could offer to other leaders of AI-powered startups? Yeah, so I think the first one is to you know, really kind of go back to a question that you asked, which is think about the bias, which I think, especially if you are kind of using models from hugging face or something that is just, you know, trained by someone else other than you, it's very easy to forget that just the way in which those models were created will result in some bias. and Quantifying the bias before operationally using those models is paramount, I would say. And trying to kind of like determine the bias of those models in, in a variety of ways, simulating kind of like how they would be used in the real world is super important. And something that, you know, the closer the application is to kind of like real life human situations, the more important it is that you're kind of absolutely sure that you're addressing whatever bias exists in those models. So that is number one. Number two is, you know, just like building a team of AI scientists is pretty challenging. I think, you know, there's there's a good and bad thing about AI, which is that there's a lot more people who are taking this as a profession and are interested in this field. Especially, I would say there's kind of like a before and after, you know, these GPT-5 or GPT-4.5 was released experience with chat gpt has driven awareness of ai kind of through the roof which also means that selecting the right people on your team is hard because you get you know thousands of applications so i would say you know being very mindful of you know hiring the right people on your team which just means that you have to pay a lot of attention to recruiting and then, you know, making sure that the people you do recruit upskill every year because there's kind of like new developments in this space that, you know, everyone needs to be aware of. So making sure they attend conferences, they listen to podcasts, like impact podcasts, and you kind of keep up with the developments in this group. And finally, where do you see the impact of flood base in three to five years? What I would really like if 
you know, in three to five years, I could come back and say, actually, the gap between, you know, the people who are insured and, and not has closed uh, significantly. If that is true, then I would say that we have been pretty successful. That's number one. And number two is, like I said, you know, in the data-rich countries like the U.S., we have, you know, algorithms that utilize a lot of different data sets that we can offer in countries without so much data. I would like to see that gap close as well. So I would like to be in a place where we can offer, you know, like the same level of algorithms for all over the world, whether you come from the U.S. or Western Europe or other parts, which doesn't currently have as much data available for those countries. This has been great. Subit, your team at Floodbase is doing some really important work for flood insurance. I expect that the insights you've shared will be valuable to other AI companies. Where can people find out more about you online? I have a LinkedIn account and a Twitter account. And I would say go to floodbase.com and, and check out all the brilliant things uh, we do as a company. And we also have a lot of publications that kind of you know go into lots more details about how our techniques are developed and implemented. And if there's questions that cannot be addressed by any of those sources, feel free to email me at uh, subit at floodbase.com. Perfect. I'll link to those in the show notes. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. I'm Heather Couture, and I hope you join me again next time for Impact AI. Thank you for listening to Impact AI. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share with a friend. And if you'd like to learn more about computer vision applications for people and planetary health, you can sign up for my newsletter at pixelscientia.com newsletter.